Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. Coming up today, Eric Schendelman, who is the co-director of Crestwood Valley Day Camp. He talks about lessons that they learned at day camp for back to school. Also, Mark Ferrant, the founder and CEO of the Canadian Juries Commission, talks about the need for a better jury system. And author Elizabeth McLeod talks to us about her new children's book entitled Meet Terry Fox. All that coming up right now on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. Hey, you know, it's back to school today in Calgary, and parents there complaining about changing guidelines when it comes to physical distancing. I guess the government made a few changes there in Calgary over the weekend. Meantime, here in Ontario, of course, the teachers' unions, they are threatening legal action over work conditions. Meantime, summer day camps, they have wound down, of course, and some are wondering if there's lessons that can be learned from their experience for the education system moving forward. Let's ask Eric Schendelman. He is the director at Crestwood Valley Day Camp and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Eric, good afternoon. Nice to have you back on the show. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me back on. I appreciate All right. it. Uh, how was your summer overall? Uh, in the beginning, I have to say it was nerve-wracking with the new protocols that needed to be put in place. But as a few days we got onto, uh, you know, I got onto the first week, uh, things calmed down and we were back to camp as usual. All right. What was your biggest challenge, would you say, kind of now looking in the rearview mirror? Uh, I would have to say there was a tie between the drop-off and pickup procedures, making sure that when we brought the kids out or took them in, they had to be physically distanced. And then throughout the day, uh, like we said on the last broadcast that was on, uh, physical distancing by far is one of the greatest challenges in a camp environment. Is it a challenge or is it just an impossibility? Uh, definitely possible. Uh, I walked around with a noodle uh, each day to begin with that was about six feet long, and any time any, any kids or staff got closer together, I'd throw that around. Uh, and it's also really important that all the senior people and staff are on board with the following of the protocols, including physical distancing. So it's, it's definitely a possibility. Okay, I ask that because I know Calgary, as I mentioned off the top, changed some of their distancing requirements. Basically, I think... You know, sort of reading between the lines here, they were saying, listen, this is just an impossibility, and if these kids are in the classroom, as long as they're at their desks, we're going to do our best to keep that two meters or or six feet. But that's kind of interesting what you did with the uh, pool noodle. Yeah, the pool noodle was one aspect, but with the day camp guidance through the Ministry of Health, it might have been a little bit different uh, than school guidance, because when they were in their cohort groups in a classroom setting inside a building, they could take their masks off and they could be closer together. Um, and and as much as we wanted to mitigate risk, they really the ministry really relied on this cohorting piece that they could almost quote bubble together and be a little bit closer. They weren't high fiving each other, they weren't hugging each other, but they didn't necessarily have to maintain that uh, six feet. Okay, tell us a bit more about this cohorting, uh, just exactly uh, how it works and why it works so well. So the Ministry of Health uh, laid out a plan at the beginning of June for day camps to operate, and it got revised throughout the summer. But the cohort remained the same for the most part of the summer, uh, being eight kids with two staff, being at one group that could travel together, do activities together, had to stay away from the other groups at all times, definitely within, sorry, outside of six feet. Um, and they developed their own routines and in- incorporated the protocols uh, from the masks to the physical distance to the hand hygiene and, and you know, having activities together. That really worked. By the end of the summer, the ministry upped the numbers to 15, which I believe 
you know, was a was a meaningful thing to do because some camps then increased their numbers. It, it worked, and I think it will work in the school system too. I know that it's already working in in some other places, um, and in Canada, our hope is that uh, COVID nineteen kind of stays away from the cohorts. Now, it's ironic you mentioned 15 because I think that's the classroom size that is recommended by the teachers' unions. That's what they're uh, looking for. Was going from 8 to 15, was 15 kind of too many, or was it sort of the upper limit, do you think, when it comes to cohorting? So we ran our camp for seven weeks, Jeff, and in the sixth week, or the end of the sixth week, we were told by Ministry of Health we could up our last week to 15. We held off on that uh, to mitigate risk, not to take any extra chances, there are camps still running today um, that have upped their numbers, and we haven't heard any any cases of COVID touch wood. Yeah, but that um, is just so critical, isn't it? I mean, the way you described it there, uh, Eric, that uh, God forbid there was an outbreak or that one camp goer, or I'll use the word student uh, in the yep. case of classrooms, if they come down test positive with uh, COVID, you do sort of limit the exposure then, right? Absolutely. The, the smaller numbers, the better. Let's let's talk about probability and, and possibility. But as far as, you know, what can happen in a school board where classes are typically 30, it, it will be very challenging. The smaller numbers, the better. We're seeing that in private schools. They can keep their numbers lower, uh, which means that we suspect they'll have fewer cases. Remember, an outbreak only takes one. They had a, they had a quote, outbreak at one of the municipal camps in Toronto. They cleaned, sanitized, uh, got to the bottom of it, contact traced, and there was no spread beyond the one case. So people are just going to have to get used to the protocols and the process if if something should happen. What would your number one piece of advice after going through the summer, running a day camp, and really dealing with a lot of issues that the education system and teachers are about to face head on with back to school, what would your number one piece of advice, Eric, be for educators? Uh, for educators, teachers, administrators, let's push politics aside, which is very difficult. I was a teacher. I, I was protected by my union. But there's a new type of PPE out there, Jeff, and it's called patience, productivity, and execution. Everyone must be patient and include cooperation with that, T- parents, teachers, uh, administrators, and students. Productivity, get down to work. Teachers need to do what they do best, which is teach. And the execution of following protocols and the execution of best laid teaching plans. Things are going to be different, no question. Protocols need to be in place. Routines need to be in place. But PPE, patience, productivity, and execution. And I have to add an H to that, Jeff, which is honesty. Because in order for us not to see outbreaks in our school system, parents have to be honest about their health and the health of their children. And don't send your kids to school if they happen to have any of the signs or symptoms of COVID-19. I was going to ask you about parents. That's your number one piece of advice for them is just be real, be honest, think about everyone, think about the collective in the whole, and even if it's a scratchy throat or a cough, better caution rather than uh, sending them to school. Yep, and and if, if need be, go for a COVID test, call telehealth, call their local healthcare professional, and call it into the school and say, Johnny's not well today, we'll keep you up to date. Eric, great discussion and some uh, great advice. Really appreciate the time, as always, and thanks so much for sharing your experience this summer. My pleasure, Jeff. I wish all the educators good luck, and uh, let's get through this together. For sure. Eric Schendelman is the director at Crestwood Valley Day Camp. It was a quarter century, 25 years ago today, that Paul Bernardo 
was convicted in, of course, one of Canada's most notorious trials. And it was a trial that was impactful for, of course, all of us, but especially the jury. And today there's a renewed call for an investment in the jury process. Mark Ferrant is the founder of the Canadian Juries Commission and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Mark, good afternoon. Appreciate the time. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. All right. After they uh, give their verdict, juries are sadly, I think, largely forgotten. How does a trial like the Bernardo trial, how does that impact somebody who's got to sit there for weeks on end? Well, it's uh, jury duty is not a vocation. So it's it's not something that any citizen has any training for. It's not something that comes with a lot of uh, foundational uh, experience. Uh, you're not prepared for what you're going to be witnessing in court by design. We want a jury to be impartial, and we want them to uh, be judges of the facts, which is what they are. That's their role in court. But we know that um, jury duty uh, has not kept pace with the modern world and, and the world that we live in. And uh, the pressures of jury duty are enormous. And that coupled with extremely disturbing, graphic, and prolonged cases can have an impact on, on the juror's life. And certainly after the trial, um, when they are uh, released and, um, and for the most part have had very few supports. Yeah, we're told that jury duty is a civic duty. And is it time to maybe kind of put that aside, do you think, Mark? Is it time to realize the sacrifice people are are giving or that they're asked to make when they sit on a jury? I, I think we need to still respect it as a civic duty, but it's not a duty for one to suffer as a result of the civic duty. And um, I think, you know, most Canadians... Um, honor the experience once they're participating in court, once they're sitting and and assume the role. Most jurors take it incredibly seriously. And for many, they find it a rewarding experience. But however, for for a large majority, and we know this from opinion data, Canadians don't want to serve on jury duty. And especially now, uh, we know that 18% of Canadians uh, amid COVID-19 are willing to serve on a jury. And more uh, Canadians have expressed a willingness to donate blood and volunteer for a community organization than serve on a jury. And that's alarming. Um, Coupled with the fact that we don't compensate jurors appropriately, Um, it's a financial barrier for many to even participate in jury duty because they can't afford it. Yeah, what are the rules surrounding that? How much do you get for jury duty? Are employers, are they to pay their uh, employees' wage while they're away from work? Sadly, it's in Ontario, the law um, is firm that an employee cannot lose their job as a result of uh, accepting a jury summons. But the employer is not obligated to pay you. They're not obligated to maintain your salary. Um, uh, Many large corporations do have that provision in place and collective bargains with unions and the like have that provision in place. But for a lot of uh, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, entrepreneurs, they can't afford to pay their, uh, their employees and they're not obligated to do it. And that's not their fault. But jury pay in Ontario isn't even available for the first 10 days of a trial. So you're not getting paid. You are not receiving any compensation at all. And then beyond that, it's $40 a day. And that's just appalling. We can't expect uh, Canadians to welcome their opportunity to perform their civic duty if they can't afford to do it. 
um, you're allowed to raise your hand and be excused uh, for jury service as, as a financial burden. But we're losing thousands of voices as a result of that. We're losing people working in the gig economy, part-time workers, people experiencing unemployment, which, of which there are 3 million Canadians now still out of work. And so we can't think of jury duty um, pay as an honorarium anymore. This isn't 1950. We have to think of it as financial support and income support. Yeah, because I don't know too many people, sorry, Mark, that can afford to take two weeks off work unpaid. I mean, everybody's got mortgages and bills. Sure, exactly. I mean, as you mentioned, after 10 days, you're getting then $40 uh, per day, and that's not covering most people or anyone's uh, bills. So if they want us as a public to take this uh, civic duty seriously, is it time that maybe the justice system and the government treated it as serious and be willing to uh, pay people for their time away from work? Well, and that's what we're asking. And that's why, you know, today is a somber day recognizing um, the the verdict delivered in one of Canada's most notorious trials and the important work that the jurors did on that case and the important work that jurors do every day in courts across our country. But we need to uh, build confidence amongst Canadians to want to serve and to be able to serve. And it's the last mandatory civic duty left in our society, but it shouldn't be at the cost of your mental health. And it shouldn't be at the cost of your financial uh, well-being. And so uh, no government should be able to stand up and say, well, uh, raising jury duty pay is not in our wheelhouse right now. It's not a priority. Uh, it is. It has to be done. Um, not to mention just parking expenses that aren't covered by the province. In, in downtown Toronto, if you're parking at the Superior Courthouse, you're looking at $30 a day. Um, coupled over a three- or four-month trial, that adds up, and that's coming out of your pocket, and that's just not acceptable anymore. Yeah. Um, so we, we, have to, we have to do this to improve the justice system and confidence amongst Canadians. In our remaining time, I want to talk about the mental health side as well. What sort of supports are in place for jury members, particularly those that have got to sit through really a graphic testimony? Well, the, it's a patchwork, uh, unfortunately, and, and for many provinces, there's nothing at all. Um, uh, or it's it's um, it's behind a judge's order um, it, it to be issued. And Ontario, Saskatchewan, and BC all um, introduced uh, a juror support program in 2017 and 2018. But those are EAP style programs. So those are conversations with a counselor. They don't address PTSD, and they don't address um, some of the trauma that uh, can occur in those trials. We're grateful that those programs exist in the absence of nothing, but we want the jury to have the same resources and the same evidence-based trauma-informed treatment that first responders receive and other court actors all involved in the same case, all seeing horrific, devastating, devastating trial evidence that you see over and over and over again. And we have to give the jury the same access to those clinicians through CAMH and through other great, uh, to other great mental health centers, because um, that, that evidence stays with you. And I, I have PTSD as a result of my service, and it stayed with me too. And I didn't have access to those resources when I needed them. And so that's why we need to ensure, especially on a day like today, 
we have to respect the work that jurors do and provide them with the resources to um, to re-enter their lives after performing their civic duty. Without a doubt. Mark, appreciate the time and the conversation as always. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. All right, be well. There's Mark Ferrant, who is the founder of the Canadian Juries Commission. You know, when I think back... And I love Terry Fox. I mean, we all do as Canadians, right? I mean, he embodies everything about us, everything that's good, that's great about being Canadian. And when I think back on Terry Fox, I think about maybe the first news event that really hit me and hit me hard. Like I was 11 when Terry uh, sadly passed away and had to suspend his uh, marathon of hope. I still remember how sad I felt uh, when he had to give up the run and then shortly after uh, when he passed away. Really one of those news events, the first news events that really just kind of hit me right there. Anyways, it's hard to believe, but this year marks the 40th anniversary of the Marathon of Hope. And a brand new children's book is celebrating the life of Terry Fox. It's called Meet Terry Fox, and the author is Elizabeth McLeod. And she joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Elizabeth, good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's great to be on your show. Well, tell us uh, why you decided to uh, write this book about uh, Terry Fox. I think all the things that you just said. Um, just He is such an amazing Canadian. And um, the team at Scholastic Canada, the publisher of this book, uh, we knew this 40th anniversary was coming up. And um, the, my book on Terry Fox is part of a series. And we try to, you know, to bring out books around significant um, anniversaries or, or events in the people's lives. So it just all came together that this was the time to do this book. All right. Well, tell us a bit about uh, why you uh, wrote this or why this is a children's book, Uh, why uh, that's important to uh, write Terry's story kind of from a child's perspective. Well, um, I often do school presentations, and uh, last year when I was working on this book, I was talking to kids about the other books in the series, and then I would end by saying, would you like to know who I'm working on now? And they all said yes, and I said, well, maybe you can guess. And I would say, um, I think this person is Canada's greatest hero. Almost all the hands would go up, and they always got it on the first guess, Terry Fox. So I was worried they were going to say Justin Bieber. Well, I was wondering who they would say, and I I felt kind of bad because I thought, oh dear, they're not going to get it, and we're all going to feel bad. Nope, every time, first guess. And then I would also ask them, how many of you have taken part in a Terry Fox run? And again, almost all the hands would go up. So he's somebody that kids, I mean, these are 10-year-old kids, maybe younger. Obviously, Terry was long gone before, you know, these kids were even born, And, and yet he's still a really important part of their lives. And I think of all of of, of every Canadian's life. This might be an obvious question, but why do you think that is? Why has his legacy endured? I, I think it's again. It's it's what you said. We I think we'd all like to think we have the same characteristics that he showed. Um, incredible determination. I mean, when you see the pictures of him running, he's really in pain. He is grimacing through this, and um, he kept going. You know, he just kept going. He ran a marathon every day, and I I am not a runner, so I've never run a marathon. But you know, people who who do run marathons, they try rain a long time, and then after the marathon's over, they need a lot of time to recover. Here is 
this young man who is doing this with just one whole leg and one artificial leg, and he's running a marathon day after day. And he did that for so many months before he had to stop. It's just an incredible story. Yeah, and on top of it, turns out he was battling cancer at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, what a brave man. Oh, you know, I just, I'm thinking back to that ad that was out, I think, a year or two ago for the Terry Fox run, and it, it was just so basic and so quiet, but so impactful, and it basically was just the sound of uh, that shoe hitting the pavement over and over again. And you multiply that by the thousands of steps he had to take every day, and it just... I get goosebumps just talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can hear it in my voice. I, I just, I find his story amazing. And thanks to him, so much money has been raised by him, as well as then, you know, people who have continued his legacy with the run. And so many um, people have benefited from that because the amount of money that has gone into cancer research, I think, has really changed things. Without a doubt, uh, for sure. Is there something that you found out about or discovered about Terry Fox in writing this book that you didn't know previously? Actually, there were three things, if we have time. Sure. But, um, but one of them was, uh, if you look at the of the images that Mike Diaz, the um, illustrator, drew in the book, you'll see when Terry's young, he has really straight hair. Now, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, the, all of those iconic pictures of Terry on his run, and the first thing you notice is his curly, curly hair. Got the curls, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But for most of Terry's life, he had straight hair. After he had to have his, his leg amputated, he then needed chemotherapy and on the chemotherapy he lost all of his hair which he hated and when it grew back it was completely curly not straight anymore it was quite an amazing change another thing that i found out about him is that he was metis so in his background his you know ancestors he had some who were first nations and some who were european and that that wasn't really talked about that much in his lifetime but his brother daryl um, looked into it just a few years ago and and you know did get get his official status as a, a Métis person, and in fact, just about six years ago, Terry was awarded the Order of the Sash by the Métis Nation, British Columbia. So yet another honor for him, and and that really you know marks his background. And and the other story that I found incredible, um, you know, if you saw pictures of Terry on his run, then you probably saw pictures of the Marathon of Hope van in the background. So that was donated to him by uh, the Ford Company of Canada, and after the run. Um, the van was given back to Ford. They took off all that signage. They completely repainted it, and they sold it to just an ordinary family to use for camping. I mean, can you think of a more iconic vehicle in Canadian history? Yeah. And just, you know, an ordinary family used it when they were finished with it. They uh, sold it to a rock band, and so it was their touring van for a while. And then somebody thought, you know what, we should find out what happened to that really important van. So um, it was sold back to the Ford Company. They put all the signage back on, and today you can see it in the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. I was going to say, that's a piece of Canadiana. It's a piece of Canadian history. It's got to be in a museum somewhere. Thank goodness it is. Absolutely. 
You know what? I love all of that. Those are three, not never mind just one, three things I'd never heard about to Terry Fox before. And I want to mention that the Marathon of Hope, it'll be a virtual run this year, happening September 20th. And you're going to appear, Elizabeth, at the Word on the Street Festival September 27th? Yes, I am virtually, of course. But, um, but yeah, the, the festival is still going ahead in a slightly different form. But it's so important, especially now in these COVID days, I think, to celebrate reading. Um, because I think people, a lot of people are really depending on reading um, to get through these difficult times. Without a doubt. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Welcome any opportunity and chance to talk about the greatest Canadian, uh, Terry Fox. Thank you so much, Jeff. I agree with you. Thank you. (laughs) Elizabeth McLeod is the author of Meet Terry Fox. And that's the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for this Tuesday, September the 1st, 2020. Thanks for listening in. And just a reminder, you can listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.